here with you again. I've been here on a couple of occasions. I see some familiar faces. The last time I was here was about a year ago, so I'm still working out the names, but thank you guys for having me. Um, if you will grab your Bibles and go ahead and turn in them to Genesis chapter 32, that's the passage we're going to be in this morning. <clears throat> and I will readily admit that Genesis 32 seems like an unlikely passage for the Sunday after Christmas. Um, and it's going to seem like that for the first half of the sermon or so. But if you'll hang with me, I promise that this sermon is going somewhere. And not only, it's not just going through interesting facts and figures about the Old Testament, although there are definitely some of those. <clears throat> it's ultimately leading through a manger to a cross. It's going somewhere that magnifies Jesus. This is a sermon, right, by way of foreshadow from the Old Testament that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It will be a very Christ-exalting, Christmas-appropriately-themed sermon by the time we get done. Now, <clears throat> so it seems like we're in an unusual place for the Sunday after Christmas. Um, here's another question you probably weren't expecting <clears throat> when you came to church this morning. How many of you, and you can just, as uh, I guess rhetorical question as much as anything else, but, but consider your, your answer to this question. How many of you have ever enjoyed, in any of its forms, the sport or the spectacle of wrestling, the sport or the spectacle of wrestling. This is going somewhere too, I promise. Uh, it's a sport <clears throat> in high school, it's a sport in college, it's a sport in the Olympics. At the quote-unquote professional model or professional level, it is very much a spectacle. And, and, you know, some people get into it, other people not so much. I actually uh, have an affinity for both the sport and the spectacle of wrestling. In high school, I wrestled, um, and, and I enjoyed that and, and had some fun matches and some others that weren't so fun. But back prior to that, in my middle school years, uh, my friends and I got very much uh, involved in, in being fans of the spectacle of professional, professional wrestling, particularly uh, seventh grade, <clears throat> or the summer going into seventh grade. We were kind of into it so much that I had a group of friends that almost on a weekly basis throughout that summer leading into seventh grade, we would get together in my buddy's yard, and there were six or seven of us uh, who would have our own Royal Rumble on a weekly basis in my, in, my, in my buddy's yard, and it was so unsafe, and it was unwise, and, it was and, and there was no supervision, and uh, thankfully nobody got hurt. We were invested uh, in the sport. We were invested in, in watching what was taking place. Now, here's the point of talking about a wrestling match. Our passage is actually about a wrestling match today, a very curious wrestling match. In fact, it's a wrestling match that's curious and different for two reasons than any wrestling match you've ever heard of or thought about if you've ever been a fan of the sport in any of its forms. Number one, it's curious for who Jacob's opponent is. Jacob's going to be the one in the wrestling match, and he has a very interesting opponent. Okay, um, this is you know this isn't this isn't your average wrestling match even against somebody like Hulk Hogan or the Undertaker. This is a crazy, bizarre wrestling opponent. But <clears throat> what makes it more unusual still, whether you've watched wrestling before or you've only uh, heard reports of how the bouts kind of go, it is very unusual for a wrestling match to be concluded. And the person who is in a crumpled, defeated heap to be declared the winner. Okay? The referee in a wrestling match, whether it's sport or spectacle, is not in the habit of grabbing the loser's hand, raising it in the air, <clears throat> and calling that combatant the winner. And yet, 
That's exactly what we're going to see in Genesis 32 this morning. So let me give you the big idea of where we're headed, and then we'll unpack uh, the passage in order to try and get there. This is a story about Jacob. It's a story about Jacob um, meeting God on his way back into the promised land. We'll talk about how he gets into that situation in the first place here in just a bit. But he has to meet God in such a way that he is stripped of his own self-reliance and his own self-sufficiency, and it's a painful process for him. But he has to be stripped in such a way that he is left to have no hope in anything but God himself before he is able to re-enter the promised land, before he's able to re-enter the land of covenant blessing. And that principle of having to be stripped and reduced down from our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency into a place where we have nothing but humble trust in God, that's a principle that applies to all of God's people in all of God's places in all times, including those of us here this morning. So let's pray and ask God to meet us in His Word. Father, we come before You as people, all of us, some probably recognizing it, others perhaps not, in need of the medicine that your word has to offer this morning. Some of us perhaps have never laid down our self-reliance, and others perhaps have done so in an encounter with Christ, but still struggle with wanting to pick it up again. Your word is encouraging, your word is edifying, your word brings light and clarity, and it magnifies the gospel of your son Jesus. So we pray that you would do that this morning in and through the preaching of this word in a way that helps us cast ourselves completely on the provision of Jesus. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Okay, so Genesis 32, let me me get us up kind of of, uh, narratively speaking to the the cusp of this wrestling match because I know it feels like we're dropping out of thin air into, uh, into this passage. We haven't been doing a sermon series on the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, this will be quick, but, it's all, but, but, but stay with me, okay? It, 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 it's relevant. Genesis chapter 12 begins the story of the formation of the nation of Israel. Meet a guy named Abram. He's called by God. Eventually, his name is changed to Abraham. He and Sarah are the forefather and foremother of the nation of Israel. And you recall that in their story, one of the things that God does is provide a miraculous childbirth for them. In their old age, they conceive and give birth uh, to, to the son Isaac. So the patriarchs of Israel go Abraham, Isaac. <clears throat> Isaac grows up. He marries Rebekah. I'm skipping a lot of details, right? Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah is uh, barren, right? She's infertile. She's unable to have children. Isaac prays that God would open her womb. God faithfully answers that prayer. And in the womb of Rebekah are twin sons, Esau and Jacob, who toil together in her womb, and at the point of their birth, Esau is the firstborn, but the twins come forth with Jacob clutching at Esau's heel. So the patriarchs go Abraham, Isaac, (coughs) Jacob. Esau is the firstborn. You may remember that he sold his birthright to Esau for a bowl of stew. It's It's a picture the Scriptures later on use to describe the foolishness of sin, trading a birthright for a mess of stew, right? And a little bit later on in the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau is deprived of the blessing of the firstborn when Rebekah and Jacob conspire against Isaac, who's an old man now, he can't see, 
right? He's on his deathbed. He's getting ready to pronounce the blessing of the firstborn, pass the mantle onto Esau. And Rebekah and Jacob conspire to take the blessing of the firstborn <clears throat> from Esau. As a result of that, Esau's very angry. He's so angry that he intends, he states his intent to kill his brother after Isaac dies. He's going to wait until his dad dies and the time of bereavement has passed, but then he's going to kill his brother. And because of that, Rebekah and Jacob cook up a plan for Jacob to flee into the land of Haran to go to live with her brother Laban. While he is in the land of Haran, Jacob is promised uh, to be married to Rachel, but in the morning he wakes up, right, for seven years of service. In the morning he wakes up, it's Leah instead. He's been deceived. He winds up spending 14 years of service for Laban in order to marry both of his daughters, Rachel and Leah. And then, this is a crazy story, isn't it? And then, following that, there's this crazy fertility rivalry between Leah and Rachel, and who's going to bear Jacob a son, and through the telling of that fertility rivalry, Jacob becomes the father of the sons who will head the tribes of Israel, the tribes of the nation of Israel. There's more scheming between Jacob and Laban. Finally, Jacob outwits Laban, and he hightails it to head back home because of the conflict that was taking place there. Laban pursues him, God intervenes in a dream and warns Laban against any kind of vengeance that he would intend to take upon Jacob. And we get left, right? They part company, Jacob and Laban part company. Jacob is heading home now to the land of promise. He's going to have to deal with Esau when he goes back there. And that leaves us on the cusp of our passage today, who Jacob meets on the way home to do business with Esau. <clears throat> now, there's a footnote that I have to tuck in here. It is not the main point, but it is a point that's significant enough that we can't bypass it. I've just told a few of the high points of the story that gets us from Abraham to Jacob in this crazy fertility rivalry with Jacob's wives. It sounds like a dysfunctional family, does it not? <clears throat> Here's the point. God is in the business of working in and through dysfunctional families. From the time of Genesis 3, there is no other kind of human family, but families with some measure of dysfunction among them. I know that at the Christmas, time, at the Christmas holidays, when you gather together with family, sometimes we enjoy the blessings of being with family, and sometimes we're reminded of their dysfunction. If you feel at all uh, grieved, wounded, hurt, reminded in ways that are painful for you at the time of the Christmas holidays that your family is broken, guess what? You're in good company. Welcome to the club. There's only one perfect father. It's the heavenly father, and he, it's part, it doesn't surprise him, right? He is in the pattern. He is about the purpose of accomplishing his redemption in and through broken families. You find yourself in one of those families, and I know that to, to, to some extent we all do, there's grace for you there. <clears throat> End of footnote. All right, Genesis 32, pick it up in verse 1. <clears throat> Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Okay, 
So Jacob's left Laban. He's returning home. It's now been 20 total years since he's left after deceiving Isaac and angering his brother Esau. He's on his way home. And as he's on his way home, he meets God's angels. Here's a part of the story I didn't tell earlier. Back in chapter 28, Jacob met the angels of God when he was leaving to go to Haran. You remember the story of Jacob's ladder, the angel? Okay. So, so he meets them when he leaves. He's meeting them when he's coming back. <clears throat> it's a sign that God's at work. Jacob's about to re-enter the promised land, but there's a surgery that must take place before he can enter. I'm going to summarize part of the chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 3 through 5. Basically, what happens here is that Jacob sends some messengers ahead to Esau. He, this, this encounter's got to happen, right? He sends some messengers ahead to Esau to see if time has dulled Esau's anger. He's, he's, he's trying to figure out whether or not Esau might be placated if he sends him a lavish enough gift. And in verses 6 through 8, what we find is that it appears that time has not dulled that anger. If you uh, just draw your attention to verse 6, when the report comes back to Jacob about Esau's uh, response, we're told that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. That's not a welcoming party. That's a small army, right? <clears throat> Even in our context, but certainly in the ancient world, that's a small army. So, Jacob takes up the strategy of dividing his own group, right, his own family into two camps, thinking if one of the camps gets attacked, the other half will be able to, to escape. So he's strategizing uh, for some kind of provision, some kind of protection for the family. Pick it back up in verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, <clears throat> O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So here, Jacob, in prayer to God, confesses fear. He confesses his own unworthiness, and he pleads God's promise back to him, right? He's laying hold of a promise that God has already given to him. The surgery of God is underway. Now, in verses 13 to 21, I'm going to summarize here again what Jacob is doing Right? He's, he's, he's prayed to God, but he's, he's going back to the, to the strategy session, and he has, right, he's got gift upon gift, herd upon herd that he's sending to Esau while Esau's still on his way. And he sends them in waves. He doesn't send them all at once. He sends one wave, and then he allows some space and some time to go, and he sends some more servants with another wave, and then another wave, and then another wave. Here's what he's doing. He's staging this gift for maximum impact. You ever eat at Five Guys? It's kind of like what Five Guys does with their french fries, right? If you've ever eaten at Five Guys, they dump way more fries into whatever container. You can order a small container of fries. That container is going to be overflowing in a sack that is bursting at the brim. They mean to give you that many fries. They want you to think you're getting more than you paid for, 
right? It's staging for impact, and that's exactly what Jacob is doing with the way that he's sending these gifts to Esau. It's a kingly gift. He hopes, look, at, look down in verse 20, he hopes by presenting his gifts in this manner that I may appease him. He's still trying to dull that anger <clears throat> in Esau so that he can return home. Okay, everything we've seen so far is a prelude to what comes next. What comes next may seem like a strange interruption on the way to the real issue of doing business with Esau. But what comes next is the main point, and it's the most important meeting that Jacob needs to have. Here's where we're going to bear down, okay? Pick up with me in verse 22, the wrestling match. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So we get two, cre two critical factors introduced to us in these first couple of, of verses that lead into this wrestling match. Number one, it's painfully clear that Jacob is left entirely alone. He doesn't have possessions available to help him. He doesn't have a company with him to deliver him. He's left all alone to do this transaction. That's intentional. <clears throat> That's not accidental. Secondly, who's this guy who wrestles with him in the middle of the night? Now, put yourself in Jacob's shoes for a moment. You've heard that Esau's coming with 400 men that 20 years have not dulled his anger if you're Jacob and you're attacked when you're on your own in the middle of the night, don't you think you would probably assume oh, it's Esau or one of Esau's soldiers coming to settle the score? That's probably who Jacob thinks it is. That's who we as the reader initially might assume that this is when he takes him, when he grabs him and wrestles with him all night long. Who else could it be? Verse 25. <clears throat> When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, this is the, the man, right? Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. We get a few more clues as to the identity of Jacob's opponent here. And it's kind of a gradual revelation of who this is. But the first, at first, the clues seem a little bit conflicting. Some would make us have a little bit more clarity about who this is, and others would make us have a little bit more curiosity. So in the, in the two verses we just read, for example, uh, on the one hand, the man sees that he does not prevail against Jacob. Then he dislocates Jacob's hip with a touch. Then he tells Jacob, let me go, for the day has broken. I want to consider those clues with you in reverse order for just a moment. At the onset of daylight, this opponent says, let me go for day has broken. It seems that Jacob cannot safely see this person's face in the full light of day. That's a hint that leads to clarity about who this opponent is going up, doesn't it? We also find that in the dislocation of the hip, this person that Jacob has been wrestling all night has been seriously holding back. That would seem to indicate clarity up. But then you have this curious feature 
where this guy sees that he doesn't prevail. That injects more curiosity, maybe a lack of clarity. Based on the first two clues, here's the obvious question. Why wasn't this match over before it started? How is it possible that this opponent did not immediately and instantaneously prevail? That's a good question. I would suggest that is the right question to be asking at this point. Hang on to it for a second. The tail end of verse 26 again. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now verse 27. The man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. It's a bizarre wrestling match, is it not? But by the time we get down through these next chunk of verses, not only is Jacob convinced that the one he's been wrestling with is God, and not only is it clear to him that God has been holding back, but in the end, after Jacob's hip has been dislocated, and the average observer of the average wrestling match would say that Jacob lost, God raises his hand and declares Jacob the victor. Again, <clears throat> more than just a little bizarre. How is it that God can declare Jacob the victor of this wrestling match? Clearly, it is not a match that Jacob won in his own strength. See, in God's wisdom and in His kindness, He has condescended to grapple with Jacob in a manner that Jacob can endure. And so, not only is the match not over in an instant, God allows it to go on all night. Why does God allow a match to go on all night that could have been over like that? Here's what I think. God's kindness and His surgical wisdom he wants Jacob to experience being brought to the end of himself. He wants Jacob to experience spending every last bit of his might, his energy, his cunning, only to result in a draw, and at that moment, bam, it's over. What realization does that bring to Jacob? It brings to him the realization that even though I wrestled with all my might, I was never even close. I am not who I thought I was. I am not enough. That's a humbling conclusion to arrive at, isn't it? But for entering the promised land, the land of covenant blessing, for entering the family of God, it is a conclusion that any of us who would wish to do so must reach, and God in His kindness reduces Jacob to a place of humble dependence on someone other than himself. Hosea chapter 12, one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament, we're not going to look there now, but Hosea chapter 12 makes a comment about this wrestling match. In Hosea chapter 12, we read as follows. I'll just read it for you. 
In the womb, it's talking about Jacob, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel, angel of the Lord, and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Here's what we learn from the commentary of Hosea on this passage. At the end of the match, when Jacob is reduced to clinging to God and protesting that I won't let you go without receiving a blessing, apparently he's doing so in a crumpled, weeping heap. Through tears, Jacob, as a crippled combatant, can do nothing else but beg for God's blessing. And that's exactly the point, isn't it? That's the point at which God moves in to complete the surgery, which results in Jacob's victory through his defeat. So, so let's just pay attention to the details. Check out what God does here. Jacob begs for God's blessing, but God does not immediately grant it. Instead, he asks Jacob a question, and in particular, he asks for Jacob's name. Now, why would he do that? It's pretty clear, right, in the mind of Jacob and to the reader that Jacob's wrestling with God. God is not asking Jacob's name for the sake of information. God already knows. It's not because God doesn't know. It's because Jacob must confess who he is. And this gets… So, here's some of the interesting facts and figures from the Old Testament. In the ancient world, names had a great deal of significance, a great deal of symbolism, a great deal of uh, meaning about the content of a person's character, somewhat so in our day, but especially so in their day. Back in Genesis chapter 25, when Jacob is born clutching at Esau's heel in in a… in a manner that foreshadows his life of clutching at Esau's blessing and grabbing and deceiving in this contest of wills uh, with, with Laban, we're told that his name, Jacob, means cheater, heel grabber. Okay, that's what, that's what the name Jacob means. In chapter 27, when Esau and Isaac learn that they've just been deceived by Jacob, here's what, here's what Esau says. Esau says to his dad, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times, the birthright and the blessing. Earlier on in chapter 27, when Jacob walks into his dad's tent and tell, to, to, to deceive him into thinking that he's Esau, so he'll get the blessing of the firstborn two times, Jacob says, I am Esau. One time, he blasphemously invokes the name of God to support his deception. He is cheating to take this blessing. So, in mercy, at the point of Jacob's brokenness, God says to Jacob, who are you? It's an opportunity for confession. Jacob cannot get God's blessing in the way that he got Isaac's. He can't manipulate it. He can't scheme for it. He can't take it by force. So, in our chapter, in verse 27, when he's asked his name, all he says is Jacob, because there's nothing else that he can do. And again, when he says Jacob, he's not just giving his name. He is confessing his character. 
through humble, broken, contrite tears, God asks, who are you? He says, I am cheater. I am deceiver. I am grabber. That's who I am. And it's not enough. Just like that, tumor's out. The skillful surgery is complete because the point of this match was not ultimately to break Jacob's hip. It was to break all remaining vestiges of his self-reliant pride. God wounds Jacob for Jacob's benefit. He exchanges Jacob's moral deformity for a physical one that will permanently mark him. And guess what? Jacob loved God for it. It was not easy. It was not fun. But he loved God for what he did. And this then is the point at which God changes Jacob's name. And when he changes his name, that signifies a changed identity, doesn't it? He pronounces Jacob the victor. He extends to Jacob his blessing. This is the only blessing that ultimately matters. This is better than Isaac's blessing. This is better than stealing Esau's blessing. God pronounces his blessing over Jacob, and he says, you are no longer cheater, you are Israel, meaning that he is one who has contended with God, and in this case, stunningly, has won by humble, dependent trust. He is a new creation. He is a man ready to re-enter the promised land. He's a man who is victorious because he's been defeated. Now, what we can't afford to miss here is that in changing Jacob from cheater to Israel, this also requires that God win by losing. The man whom Jacob wrestles, we come to find out it's God, it's the angel of the Lord, in order, in order to win by losing, God has to restrain the full expression of his own glory, even to allow Jacob a handhold on him, right? God had to grant to Jacob what Jacob could not take from him by force. But in that match of restraint and loss, God wins Jacob's lasting, limping trust. And in that, we see a remarkable foreshadow of the cross, don't we? Now, again, just to tuck in another footnote, if you read the rest of Jacob's story, and you should, right? Sometime, maybe you've got a little time on your hands between now and New Year's, you should. One of the things you'll find is that Jacob's race isn't finished. He is not a perfect man after being a victorious, though defeated man. Sanctification is a process for all of us. It was a process for Jacob. But the point, if you keep reading his story, is that the one who could deliver Jacob from himself is the one who can get Jacob and you and me all the way home, right? All right, verses 31 and 32. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel did not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. God's met Jacob. He's given him his blessing. We're given a glimpse now, not only of how this interchange marked Jacob and uh, Israel, but how it is to have an impact 
on the rest of the nation forevermore, even down to the present day. Now, in, in their case, in the manner of eating customs and a limp that Jacob persists with from this point forward, but it extends to us as well. We're going to talk about the, the, the victory by defeat of Christ at the cross. One of the things that does for the people of God in the new covenant, interestingly enough, it changes our eating habits as well, doesn't it? Think about this the next time you take the Lord's Supper. There is a meal that we memorialize on a regular basis that commemorates victory through defeat. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time considering, not the Lord's Supper primarily, but how all of this wrestling match between Jacob and the angel points us to the majesty of Jesus Christ. This principle of having to lay down our self-sufficiency to hope in God alone, it's true for all of God's people. It was true for Jacob. Moses is writing this book to the wilderness generation who is preparing to enter the promised land. He's using this story to tell them the same story. If they would enter the land of promise, the land of covenant blessing to enjoy life in the family of God, they've got to do the same thing Jacob did. They've got to gain their victory through the defeat of their own self-reliant pride. But it goes back further than Moses and the wilderness generation, doesn't it? Go all the way back in your mind to Genesis chapter 3 and the sin in the Garden of Eden. When God exiles Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, He posts an angelic sentry at the garden with a flaming sword that prevents re-entry into the garden. What's He saying? What did Adam and Eve understand by that? He's saying, you can't come back in as you are. You must be changed before you can come back in. That's the, the same thing is true for us who would enter the kingdom of God or ultimately the new Eden. You can come in, the gospel says, but not as you are. We have to be changed by God before His presence is a blessing to us and not a curse. So, in the fullness of time, Jesus is the one who had to climactically lose so that we could win. Thinking of the the uh, series you had during Advent last year from the Philippians uh, chapter 2 passage, Jesus had to humble Himself to the point of death on a cross so that our faith could find a grip on Him. Had He not done that, our faith would reach and find nothing. He's allowing us a grip. The hope of the gospel, the hope of the gospel is that in Christ's sacrificial defeat, He won access for anyone who would believe into the very presence of God. Now, as our passage makes clear, this kind of abandonment of self-reliance often happens when people are at the end of their rope. Maybe some of you feel like you're there today. Maybe some of you feel like you're at the end of your rope. So what would it look like to renounce our own failed attempts to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and to rest our weight entirely on Christ instead? Here's what I want to do with the time we have left. I want to try to make application of our passage in three different directions to three different kinds of people who might be among us today. I would suggest are probably among us today. Here's, here's the first group, okay? You've been there. You have met Jesus. And in that encounter, He may have caused you to limp. Your limp may be one that people can see. Your limp may be one that people can't see. But it may have happened nevertheless. 
If that's true for you, there is no pretending that it isn't really hard to follow Jesus sometimes, right? But because you've met Jesus in this manner, even though you do limp, you're the kind of person who limps like Jacob, with a humble confidence that Jesus lost so you could win. If you're in this group, you're in very good company. <clears throat> Jacob, Moses, David, they all experienced being broken from the, pr the, the pride of self-reliance into a humbling trust in the provision of the Lord. Or think about uh, the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, we're told he's given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. He pleads with God on multiple occasions to take it away from him. What does God say? He says, no, because my power is perfected in your weakness. It's a good, right, in, in, in the hands of God, in the economy of God, whose ways are higher than ours and better than ours, it's good for us to not only be weak, which we are, but to experience and acknowledge that weakness so that we will rely on Him. Or how about Peter? Remember Peter? Jesus tells the apostles, you're all going to be scattered. What's Peter say? He says, I got this. I'll never fall away. You remember the line in Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that says, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Jesus says, Peter, you don't got this. And I want you to know that so that when you meet me on the other side, you will experience the liberating truth that I got you. I bet there are plenty of people at Christ Community that could give amazing testimony to this kind of work in your lives. And if that's true, you should. Over lunch today, uh, if you're part of uh, community groups or, or small groups, uh, discipleship, Sunday school classes, you should share these stories. Some of you have profound limps, and yet you are thankful for how God has used those in you to produce a humble, dependent, faith-filled grasp on Jesus. Still, like Jacob, this group struggles sometimes. Just because you've turned to Jesus doesn't mean you're never tempted to falter or doubt or waver. So the charge for group one, if you're in group one this morning, the charge to you is pretty simple. Keep clinging. You have clung to Christ. Keep clinging. Meditate again and again on how He lost so you could win. Do you remember how they mocked Jesus on the cross in Matthew chapter 27? They said in Matthew 27, 42, He saved others but he cannot save himself. They did not know how true that statement was. If he would save you, the one thing he must not do is self-protect, is save himself. When he could have, right? Legion of angels like that. He refused to clutch onto those prerogatives, to clutch onto those prerogatives. Did I say that twice? You know what I mean. 
and he saved you instead. There is so much fuel for perseverance and faith in meditating on Christ's defeat for your victory. Well, that's group one. What about group two? Group two is the group that may be at the end of their rope today, right? Maybe you're here, you feel like you're at the end of the rope. You're in the thick of the wrestling match right now. You're being reduced. You're being stripped of your self-reliance. And guess what? It hurts. It isn't fun. Maybe you're wondering if this can possibly, possibly be good. Maybe you're wondering if God is your friend or your foe. The kingdom that you've propped up for yourself is crumbling. You're beginning to recognize that you're not who you thought you were and your resources aren't enough. But it's scary to let go of whatever it may be that's always given you a sense of security, right? You've been clutching onto that for a very long time. It's intimidating to let it go. What should you do? Go to the cross where Jesus lost to give you himself and hear him asking you, what's your name? And as hard as it may be, the best and most secure thing you can do is to tell him who you are outside of Christ. It is not for his informational benefit. It's for your confessional gain. He already knows, but it's how the cancer gets out. So tell him, I am liar. I am cheater. I am deceiver. Tell him I'm a self-medicator an image manager, a false intimacy junkie. I'm self-righteous. I'm a manipulator. I'm a frantically insecure people pleaser. I'm a lover of money. I'm an idolater. I'm a sinner. And it's not enough. Please bless me. That kind of encounter may make you limp. It will absolutely require you to die to self. But if you do it, you will rise with a new name, a new identity, and a far better love. Last group, group three. Maybe you don't really know much about Jesus at all. Maybe you're here because it's the Sunday after Christmas and you're supposed to come to church on the Sunday after Christmas, right? Or maybe you know a lot about Jesus, about Jesus, but you haven't really encountered him personally in a way that makes your faith your own. This is often true for uh, kids and teens and young adults who've grown up in Christian homes, in Christian contexts, going to church. Sometimes they know a lot of facts and data, but they haven't had that encounter with Jesus whereby their faith has become their own. You can pray and ask Jesus to meet you personally like that. You can do it today. What you need to know if you're in this group is that this meeting, the meeting between you and Jesus, has to happen on your own between you and him. If you grew up in a context where you were, where you were nurtured in the faith, there's a lot of people who love you, parents, pastors, youth leaders perhaps, that are praying for that for you, but here's what they can't do. They can't lay down your self-reliance for you. 
The only person who can do that in transaction with Jesus is you, you, nobody else can do that for you. Now, I recognize that asking for Jesus to meet you and to make you humbly dependent upon him sounds like and can be a very scary thing. It feels like we're losing control. And it's kind of the point, isn't it? Think about how Jesus taught us to pray, right? One of the things that Jesus taught us to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I would submit to you that that's about as radical a prayer that you could ever pray. Because when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, that's a prayer to have my kingdom and your kingdom shrunken. It's a prayer to have our false little kingdoms that we've been propping up with whatever, you know, we re rely on and reach for reduced. But the wisdom in that prayer is that the kingdom you would design for yourself and the kingdom I would design for myself isn't enough. And his kingdom is the only one that doesn't have an expiration date. Yours isn't enough. Mine isn't enough. Ours won't last. His does. And Jesus wants you to know that when everything else finally disappoints you, he is faithful and he is better than wherever we have been reaching for that sense of sufficiency and that sense of identity. If you have never done that before, you can do it today. There are numerous people who would love to help you with that after we close. Worship team, Pastor Rick, leaders in the church, myself included, I would love to talk with you after the service if that's something you're wondering about. How does that even transpire? For any of us, whether we've never met Jesus or we've been walking with him for a long time, but still find ourselves tempted to fall back into old patterns, the relevant questions for everyone in here today are two. Who are we outside of Christ and who are we inside of him? In Christ, he offers us a victory that is strange in many ways. Strange, but also wonderful. No matter which group you find yourself in, cling to him this morning. Let's pray for that. Jesus, we give you glory for how unfathomably well you have loved us. At infinite cost to yourself, you lost so we could win. You've made your obedient life and your sacrificial and atoning death something that we can grab onto, something we could never manipulate or take by force. So we give you glory today, Lord. We know that that is the purpose of the coming of that baby in the manger. Father, we thank you for planning that spirit. We thank you for empowering Jesus through that life of obedience, even to the point of laying down his life in sacrificial atonement on that cross. Would you awaken uh, hearts that are dull, would you open eyes that are blind, ears that have been stopped up to the majesty and the safety of resting in one who's far better than whatever we might be tempted to cling and clutch to? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.